Well, good evening, everybody. How's everybody doing? Doing okay? We got a little fall weather. We're supposed to get some snow by the end of the weekend. Winter's coming at it. I know, sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Some people are like, oh, just ruined it for me. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet in person, my name is Bob Seal. I'm one of the pastors here at Timberline Church. And uh, I love the opportunity each week to be here together at Wednesday Night Community just to take a deep breath, refocus myself um, on what God has to say about life. And I think those of you that have been here will agree that this series on the Ten Commandments, God's Antidote for Chaos, it's been fascinating. And, and hopefully you'll find it at least semi-fascinating tonight as, as we look together. One of the things I wanted to share with you is this. Um, I think you would be surprised, I mean, maybe in some ways not surprised, because you know the pastors here work very hard, but you might be staggered by the amount of study and preparation that Pastor Brent Cunningham does before he gives us sermons and, and Donnie Abbott and those who participate. They really prepare hard for this time. It's hours of study, it's hours of writing, it's hours of dreaming semester to semester what topics we will discuss. And one of the things I love about my friendship with, with Brent and with Mackenzie Matthews and some of the other teaching team is as we're learning, we just get in conversations about this stuff. So just this Tuesday uh, morning, we were driving down from the Risk Canyon area from after a uh, staff offsite, and we started tossing around our topic tonight. And I've never seen a more engaged group of people sitting around talking and discussing murder um, ever. Um, but that's our topic tonight. It's the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. And uh, we were getting ready pre-service, and Norris, our, our percussionist, our drummer, he's like, how'd you pick this topic? And I'm like, Norris, that's not the question. How did I get picked to talk about this topic, right? I mean, did Brent go, okay, who's the angriest pastor here that we could get to come up? Who's the pastor who's an expert in murder? Or maybe who's the pastor most likely given the opportunity to take someone's life? But alas, it's none of those things for those of you in the front row that were getting nervous. Uh, it's just the, it's the day, the Wednesday that fit into the schedule. Uh, but I would say that I have not studied something this interesting, this nuanced, um, this heavily covered in the scriptures in a long time. And it seems like you're like, but Bob, it's murder. Like, shouldn't this just be like a five-minute kind of sermon, right? Some of you were hoping for that. Sorry to disappoint you. You're thinking, five minutes, we can get through this really quick. Murder, don't do it. It's bad. Murder, bad. Don't do it. But it's much deeper than that when you look at what the Bible has to say about this commandment. This sixth commandment begins a series of commandments that covers our relationships with other human beings. It's commands on if you obey those, these, these right here, you, you're giving yourself a shot at your human relationships flourishing if you will obey these five commandments, it's our relation to each other, where the first commandments dealt with our relationship with God, we're moving into our relationships with others. And it makes sense, logically, doesn't it, that the first thing that we would start with is the commandment 
in Exodus 20, the sixth one, do not murder. Um, and when they talk about murder, they're talking about the unlawful or illegal taking of a life. In order to discuss this, to understand it the way we need to, to really grasp what the scriptures are saying about murder, and later on Jesus' deepening of this teaching of this commandment, we need to understand some words, some legal words, in fact. And the first one that we need to understand is a word called enmity. Enmity, E-N-M-I-T-Y. It's where we get the word enemy from. But enmity is the state of feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. Let me say, read that again. Enmity is the state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. Now, that would never happen with anybody in this room, certainly not a pastor, right? This word reminds me of growing up in northern Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., a little town called Springfield on the outside of what they call the Beltway, just outside of Washington, D.C., and in our neighborhood, there was a whole pack that today the kids would say a whole squad of us that ran around together, a dozen or more that we ran around. And I was about six years old when this happened. Now, those of you that were, you know, men, when we were little boys, you're going to know what I'm talking about. Moms, dads of children, you'll understand. Little kids sometimes, especially boys, when they're out playing and having a good time, they're having so much fun that when the call of nature comes to use the restroom, you try to postpone that as long as you can. I remember watching our son one day on a soccer field where they just do pack soccer. You know, they're really small, running. everybody's running in a pack. And, and he, as he was, during the stoppage of play, he'd be doing this. And my, my wife's like, what is wrong with him? Oh, you just have to go to the bathroom. He goes, how do you know? I'm like, this is what guys do when they need to go to the bathroom, but they're not going to come off the field. They're just like this. And, and so this friend of ours, Stan, we're playing this great game of scarecrow tag, which is where when you're tagged, you stand like this, and somebody has to slide through your legs before, to free you. And it was a pretty heated game. We were serious about our scarecrow tag in the neighborhood. And Stan was it, and he was chasing us, but it probably had been about 45 minutes when we first saw Stan getting the shakes, like this. He, he, he's needed to use the restroom for a long time. Well, Stan starts chasing one of our friends, and we were in his backyard, and it was kind of had this big hill in it, and he was chasing one of the, the guys down the big hill. And you know what happens when you get a lot of speed and then the ground gets flat? If you're going fast, you're going to hit it, and that's exactly what happened to Stan. He's running down, chasing this guy, determined, hits the ground, face plants, wipes out, takes a digger. He's got turf on his head. Now, we were not the most emotionally compassionate group of people on the planet at that time. When one of our friends fell, fell down like that, we thought it was really funny. Okay, so Stan stands up and he's got a piece of turf on his head and we are laughing. And then one of the guys goes, dude, you wet your pants. And you could see Stan's face turn red. We all laughed. Now, looking back at it now as like a dad, I'm like, we were horrible human beings. 
What was wrong with us? But as little boys, we were, we were it was just guys being guys. But Stan ran inside and, you know, shocker, he didn't come out back out the play, tagged that day. He was just embarrassed and ashamed. Well, I noticed something after that day had changed. I wasn't the one laughing the loudest. I wasn't the one who pointed out um, that he had wet himself, but I was out of the group of guys playing the person that he would have said was his closest friend in the group. And that day, our relationship changed. See, back then, I was a skin, real skinny kid, okay? Super skinny, and I had flowing hair, though. Hard to imagine back then. Parted in the middle. I looked so good. But I was skinny, and, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So I wore jeans till, you know, they were late, like five years too short, you know? I'd, and after that day, he started to make fun of the way I looked, the jeans I wore, he made fun of how skinny I was. He made fun of my buck teeth and my big ears. And this was just kind of a thing going on. And over time, we developed enmity for each other. Not all at once, but over time. And it wasn't all the time. Sometimes we got along, but we were opposed to one another. We had hurt one another. And as six years old, you know, we didn't know how to work this stuff out. So it was just there hanging out, just below the surface. It's the state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. Two other words we ought to be aware of. Just like in English, we have two words for killing or murder. One is to kill something, to uh, take a life, the life of someone or something. The other word is to, to murder, to unlawfully, illegally, immorally take the life of a human being, which is murder. In the Hebrew, there's two words as well um, for this. The first one for kill is hahag, okay, kind of like hug with a stutter, hahag. Okay, the other word is rasak, okay, and probably if you pronounce it really right, it'd have more of a ah to it. But the, the two words here, one means to kill, to take the life um, of anything, of, a, of an animal or, or a person. The other means to murder, take the life of a human being. And this word, rasak, um, appears extensively in the first five books of the Bible called the Torah or the Pentateuch. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the only law or prohibition contained in all five of those books that's consistent is murder. And the penalty for murder in each of these is a life for a life. It's worth noting, because there's nuance to this, and we don't want to get on rabbit trails, but we've got to understand this deep enough so that we don't get distracted from the point that God is trying to make from this command, do not murder. But here's a couple things. One is that murder requires a life for a life. This, this is called, in legal terms, the, the lex talionis. You, you see it in Scripture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. You also will see, and some of these scriptures are in your notes here. I put a whole bunch of different scriptures we won't cover, but you can go back and look at the amount of scripture on this. There, there's scriptures in there about killing and war, and it's differentiated from murder. It's allowed, but it also has some boundaries. 
you'll see that um, it, there's an allowing of eating of meat, which differentiates the taking of an animal's life from a human's life, that they're different. And lastly, you'll see that it prescribes animal sacrifice or killing for the atonement of sins for the individual or the community. So there's a differentiation between killing and the taking of a human life. The focus point, the trajectory of everything we're going to talk about in this commandment is this. It is the protection of human life. That's what this commandment's about. One scholar puts it this way, the rule of God over human life is so clear and the value of life so high that nothing except human life can compensate for the taking of another human life. The reason why life is so valuable that taking it requires another life to be taken is because the human being, the bearer of life, is made in the image of God. We are all imagers of God, created with dignity by the Creator. And therefore, every life, whether we agree, disagree, whether we like or don't like, is created in the image of God. Everybody we encounter is a mother, a father, a sister, a brother, a son or daughter, and most importantly, fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of our creator. Our lives have immeasurable value, and in God's rule and design, we are to treat each other as such. Thou shalt not kill isn't only about murder and all the passages in here that you can read. It's about the protection and importance of human life. Let's look at a, a couple verses here just to give you a flavor of the New Testament verse and then we're going trans to transition into looking at what Jesus has to say about it in the beginning of the Sermon of, on the Mount in Matthew 5. This comes out of Numbers 35. Here's the context. The context is the, the Israelite nation has been wandering the desert, right, for 40 years, and they're about to come into the promised land, and how they live life now settled down in the promised land is going to look very different than it did while they were wandering. In fact, some of the rules that fit during their wandering in terms of how they related to God and to one another is now going to change when they settle down into the promised land. And that's the context of this part of Numbers. Numbers 35, if you want to follow along in your Bible or on your device, feel free. We'll start in verse 11 of Numbers 35. When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, select some towns to be your cities of refuge, to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. Interesting. They will be places of refuge from the avenger, okay, which was somebody who was avenging the blood of the, the loved one, maybe a relative who was going to avenge a life for a life, might be pursuing them, for refuge from the avenger so that anyone accused of murder may not die before they stand trial before the assembly. Notice the protection of life even in murder. Hey, hey, 
There's a place of refuge where you need to go for safety so you can stand trial because taking a life is serious business. And you better be sure, and so there's going to be an assembly that looks at the evidence, sound familiar, to make sure that you did the crime before your life is forfeit. And he says, these six towns we will give to be your cities of refuge. Give three on the side of the Jordan, three in Canaan as cities of refuge. These six towns will be place of refuge for the Israelites and for foreigners residing among, among them, so that anyone who has killed another accidentally can flee there. We call this manslaughter. That would be our word for it, accidentally. They're thinking this out. They're saying, hey, if this is an accidental killing, they can flee to one of these six cities. And who they're talking to here about these six cities are, are the Levites. These would be where the priests came from that took care of the temple. And this tribe of Israel wasn't given any land. They were given 42 cities, six of which were strategically placed in the promised land so people could flee from different directions if they had murdered somebody accidentally. Interestingly enough, it, if you'd faced trial and it was determined that this was an accidental murder, all right, manslaughter, you had to stay in that city of refuge, okay, you couldn't leave. If you left the city, the avenger could come and kill you. It was, it was lawful for him to do that. You were kind of exiled to this one place. It's very nuanced already, isn't it? They're thinking through some of the details in this new existence in the promised land. We'll pick it up in verse 16. It starts to talk about the difference between manslaughter and different acts of taking a life in murder. Verse 16, if anyone strikes someone a fatal blow with an iron object, that person is a murderer. The murderer is to be put to death. No talk about the city of refuge for this person. And then it goes on to talk about if you strike somebody with wood or you strike somebody with rock. Basically, they're saying, hey, if you pick up somebody, somebody with the intent to hit them with it and it kills them, you've got intent. That was an intentional act. Therefore, it's murder. And then it begins to dive deeper into this idea of murder, and it starts to deal with motive and intent in verses 20 and 21. If anyone with malice afterthought shoves another or throws something at them in, in set, throws something at them intentionally so that they die or if out here it is that word again en enmity motive motivation a built up hatred or anger or opposition to someone if out of enmity one person hits another okay so back in that day of standard popped me in the nose out of enmity and he'd killed me, he was guilty of murder because of what was in his, in his heart. If out of enmity one person hits another with their fist so that the other dies, that person is to be put to death. That person is a murderer. It sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? But it's interesting, even in this, there's a protection of life. Because it doesn't say, hey, you can go after the other family mem members. You don't go get to go down the path of redemptive violence where, hey, you killed one of mine, I'm going to wipe out the rest of yours. In, his, in this, there's actually an element of protection and love 
and structure in this. But bottom line is to take a life of an imager, an image bearer, was serious business. Well, then it starts to address motive, intent, crimes of passion, premeditation, premeditation, and then from there it talks about how do you settle accounts? We see the way to settle the account to atone for the murder when it's intentional or it comes out of enmity is a life for a life. But what about manslaughter? What can atone for that? Numbers 35-25. The assembly must protect the one accused of murder, in this case manslaughter, from the avenger of blood and send the accused back to the city of rich refuge from which they fled. This person's been taken to trial from the city of refuge, now to trial. It was manslaughter, and now they say you have to safely get them back. The accused of manslaughter, the guilty of manslaughter, may stay there until the death of the, must stay there till the death of the high priest who was anointed with holy oil. Even in the case of manslaughter, Animal sacrifice, which was how atonement was made for the forgiveness of sins back there, wouldn't work. Because in this sin, the life of an image bearer had been taken. And only the death of the high priest, at the time he died, they didn't sacrifice him. But at the time of his death was that person's guilt, atonement, was their account reconciled and paid. They had to stay there. Keep that in the back of your mind. We'll get back to that later in the message. So the weight of taking a life is huge. If you have questions about war and killing in war, Deuteronomy 20 is a fascinating uh, piece of scripture to look, look at. It, it covers killing in war and differentiates it from murder. It talks about um, who can be exempt from military service. Uh, it's a, there's a command in there that you must first seek a, extend a terms of peace before you engage in war. And if the other city or your, the person that you're going to fight accepts the terms, okay, of peace, there is no war. They weren't allowed to, ha God continually in these commands as they flesh them out, as they develop them and they have more and more sophistication, the point is to protect human life. And that gets us to Jesus. Jesus brings his own deepening. He amplifies this sixth commandment, do not murder. He transcends the ancient commandment on murder and makes it clear that protecting human life is the world's most important service. Now, I just want to talk just a disclaimer as we get into to this. It's possible, um, like, it's possible there's someone here that whose own life has been tremendously shaped, wounded by murder. Two weeks ago in a in a pastoral counseling setting, I sat with somebody, it, and they were broken. It was the two-year anniversary of a murder-suicide of somebody that they knew. And this can be a heavy subject as we talk about this. 
And I mention that because as we talk about these things, you're on a journey towards healing. And we just want to say we're glad you're here and in it with, you, with us. In this, we don't want you to hear accusation or, or anything that would wound. You're, you're on a unique journey like my friend is. As we begin to talk about anger, I also, which is what really we will, but Jesus did, I want to make clear as we talk about anger, in particular anger that we carry around inside of us, there might be some of us who are survivors of abuse or neglect or violence. And as we talk about anger, the righteous anger you have in you and the journey you're on towards healing, we want to acknowledge that some of what Jesus is saying is not, is not to you. What he offers in terms of healing and in terms of compassion, it is to you. But what he's talking about here is something different. It's about us making a decision to willfully carry anger in our hearts. And, th and that is not what happened to you and what's being talked about here. But I would say my friends who are survivors of this, they're on a journey and they know they're on a journey where they need to deal with their anger in order to heal and to flourish in their life. And Jesus is going to begin to talk about. So that's a, a little disclaimer because Jesus' words here and his thoughts, they're provocative. They're strong. We've all heard them. And I would encourage you that though we have heard them, don't let your familiarity with them make you complacent as you listen. To the hearer in this day, what he was saying was like, mind-blowing. It was challenging in even how he said it. So Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You've heard it said, heard that it was said to the people long ago. What's up with that? Is he making fun of the people long ago? He's seeming to make a special point. I think part of the point he was making is some of the laws that served Israel while they wandered the desert they weren't relevant when they settled down in the promised land. And what Jesus is saying, hey, some of the ways that we interpreted these laws and brought structure in order to our community of faith, those laws don't serve us the same way long ago. I'm going to give you a teaching that doesn't abolish the old law, it deepens it. Because this now fits to the world we live in. So he's saying, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be sub subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. This is talking about the end times kind of judgment. He's pointing to the time when we stand before God one day and we're accountable for our life and our actions kind of judgment. This isn't like, here comes the judge. Here comes the, like the court thing. It's kind of like judgment, judgment, you and God, accounting for your life. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Rakha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be re reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court 
Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. I mean, did Jesus just wake up on the wrong side of the bed this day? I mean, it's kind of like, this is kind of like serious Jesus. But anger, murder, the community and how it interacts with us, our human relationships, what a Jesus-centered community looks like is serious business. And he said, hey, you heard long ago this, but I tell you, anyone who is angry, these statements where you've heard it said, but I now tell you they're called um, anti antitheses or antithesis. Really, scholars are starting to change it to say these are epithesis, that they're central. Jesus is central in this. The core of his message, though, that he's sending is a divine displeasure or contempt towards murder of his image bearers, the crown jewel of his creation. And the core of Jesus' message we're going to see is not just don't murder. It's not just, hey, don't murder, which we all knew coming in here, right? Don't do that. He's taking it to another level, and he's saying, catch this, don't stay angry with or nurse hatred for a brother or sister, an imager. The word here used for angry is the Greek word for orgy. Some of you just woke up. You were like, what? Did he just say orgy? Orgy. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? When I read that, I'm like, what are you talking about? But it, it, think about it. He's talking about disrespect, insecurities, harsh words, neglect, violence, and them all intertwining to create a deep-rooted anger. That's the Greek word that he chooses to use there. And what he's getting at is carried anger. That the kind of anger that just isn't like a flashpoint, but the kind of anger that you carry around in you. And in fact, you carry it around by making the decision to carry it around. That somebody wrongs you and you decide, I'm going to carry around. And that begins to develop into enmity. Opposition of feeling and thinking about another human being. And Jesus is saying here that that kind of anger carrying is like murder. He says it's a big problem. It needs to be addressed. Human flourishing depends on us dealing with this issue. It's kind of like this. Stan and I, back in our six-year-old days, we took a little bit of anger, he laughed at me, he called me skinny and laughed at my pants, and we put some of that in our backpack, and we decided we're going to carry this around about each other. What's funny is we saw each other at a high school party at six, six, like 10 years later, 
uh, he'd gone to a different high school and we laughed about the whole thing and we're like, yeah, what was that all about? I mean, it, it all ended up well. But for those years, we carried around some anger towards each other with this enmity. This enmity leads us to do and say things. You know the old saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me? Baloney. Not true. Because we know that words that attack who we are, our identity, how we look, our character, our competency, our intelligence, they're deeply wounding things. And that, what, that is what Jesus begins to get here. Those woundings create patterns in our lives that lead to more carried anger around with us towards the people that hurt us. And he talks about, hey, listen, when you say raka or fool, the two words here, when he talks about when you say these things, he, he's saying basically one word is an insult about a person's intelligence. You're stupid. The other one is an insult that has to do with a person's character, their moral fiber. And in in this, Jesus is saying, hey, you're on the precipice of hell when out of carried anger, you utter those words. He's saying those words, hard words, demeaning words, that come out of our mouth from a place of carried anger towards another is in the same judgment category as if we took somebody's life. How heavy is that? He says your contempt for people that you carry around is on the same par with murder and it deserves the same kind of judgment. I'm reading this and at this point I'm like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, uh-oh. Now, I'm not an expert on murder in spite of giving this message. I'm not an expert on murder. Unfortunately, I am an expert on anger. I've willingly decided to carry my fair share of anger around in my backpack as I journey life. And there comes a time where my childhood backpack, my carried anger, wasn't big enough. And I needed a bigger one. And then after I stuffed enough in there, as I got a little more adult, I needed a bigger backpack to put this on. And it's heavy. It's hurt the people closest to me. My wife, my children, my parents all bear the scars of my carried anger. Several years ago, I decided I need to get rid of some of this. It's too heavy. And in fact, it's too wounding. I don't want to live like that anymore. 
Jesus offers two little steps on how we can begin to take some of the weight out of the anger that we carry with us. Verse 23 in Matthew 5. Therefore, if you're giving, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Isn't it interesting during worship or church, during your devotional or prayer time, I'm not just thinking about my relationship with God, but my relationships with other people always pop into my head. Does that happen to you? I think of my relationships, the status of them, the ones I love. When I go to pray, I pray for those that I care about. And here it's interesting what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, if you think, if there's someone out there that you think someone has against you, it's not the person, okay, that has been wronged that Jesus is saying, hey, if you've been wronged, to go tell somebody. He's saying, if you think there in your devotion in church while you're at worship, there's somebody there. And it, you, this isn't like literally you have to like leave church now. I'm glad none of you like ran out of the room right there. Right there. But there's this idea of urgency. If, if you can think that someone has something against you, there's a sense of urgency. As soon as you can, pick up that phone. Go have a cup of coffee. Sit down and have a conversation and say, hey, I think I've let you down or I've wronged you or I know I hurt you and I want our relationship to be reconciled. This in particular, this verse has to do with the community of believers, Jesus followers, that we're to, we're to take the initiative when we've wronged somebody. The next verse has to do more with the, the human the human community as a whole. Verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Jesus is saying, hey, Time is of the essence. If you're not going to go out of love, go out of fear, because what's the person who's been, I mean, we all have lived this and experienced, right? It's not just me. What's the person who's been wronged doing? Are they talking to anybody? They're along the way in their networks talking to people, positioning, telling their side of the story. What's that doing? It's creating chaos. It's creating more enmity. It's not just human life that is being damaged here. It's human reputation that's getting murdered. I saw a thing today that popped up on my news feed um, about an NBA athlete in, in uh, China right now. It's, it's quite the news story. 170,000 tweets in a planned attack, they call it trolling, a planned attack against this person's character and reputation, Say it's saying that this person is a bad person. I bet you that person wishes that he'd, he'd right away when he'd done what he knew that was going to harm somebody, he'd gotten on the phone. Hey, I'm so sorry. Shouldn't, uh, right? And Jesus is saying, hey, if you're not going to do it out of love, you might want to do it out of fear. 
because this whole thing's going to create a lot of chaos. And at some point, this might get out of your control. And you might not have control to dial this thing back. So Jesus doesn't leave us without hope. He isn't going to leave us without the means, but he's basically saying, hey, time is of the essence. Just go to the person. Now, that's easy on one hand, right? But so hard to do. Because I've found when I'm carrying around anger, I feel justified. But hear what, it, what Jesus is trying to do as we wrap up. It's as if he's saying, this command puts a, we as Jesus followers, this is how we're supposed to live. This command is to move us, change us, guide us towards a different way of living where we literally put a bubble of protection around everyone that we meet along the way. But Jesus knows that the disciple too carries within us the plague of original sin. That deep pool of bitterness and anger that we've decided to care, carry with us. But he says when you are aware of it, we can do something about it. And you and I are to be a part of God's creative, redemptive work to show another way where we are not just going to not murder our neighbors. We are going to protect them, their reputations, their property. We're going to do everything in our capacity to help them be a flourishing whole person. It's not just about not murdering them. It's about protecting them and helping them flourish. And in doing so, we are taking a little bit of God's rule in heaven and we're bringing it to earth. We're restoring, we're restoring order where there's chaos. And that's what should be distinctive about our relationships and our community. And if you'll be aware of the anger that you carry and you'll take these small steps and you'll invite God into it with you, he will meet you there and it will change the way you think. Just this week, because I think God was just toying with me, right? Is that, Bob, you're loving this murder stuff, man. Hey, check out what Jesus says. Look at these two different words on murder. This week, somebody questioned my professionalism, my integrity, my competency. And you know what? That's not what made me angry. Because, you know, sometimes I don't get it right. And maybe their questioning that has some merit. But in this case, the questioning of my competency and my integrity, I thought about it pretty deeply. And I'm like, I don't think it's warranted. You know what made me mad? This is a friend. They didn't come to me. That made me angry. Jesus isn't saying you can't be angry. Because let's face it, in the world, if you look at the news, there's a lot to be angry about, right? And if somebody hurt one of my kids, I would be angry. 
I told Brent that one time this friend of mine in high school, Mike Volpe, walked up and he just, no reason, he just slapped me in the face. And I felt so angry when it happened and it hurt so bad. My reaction, I didn't have time to think. I was just like, slap. <laughs> and he goes, why'd you do that? And I'm like, you slapped me in the face. It hurt. Why did you do that? He's like, I don't know. I wanted to. I'm like, it hurt. And our track coach walked by. He's got a bloody nose and the left side of my face is red. I, I don't, we're going to get angry. In fact, the Bible calls that word thymos. It's like anger that if you had a, some straw here, I put a match to it, it would go woof. And just as quiz, quick as it went up, it would go down. Now, we can say some pretty hurtful things in that kind of anger too, can't we? But Jesus isn't saying as believers we can't be angry. What he's saying is we shouldn't be carrying it around. Because when we do that, we are going to wound and hurt life. And the Jesus community knows there's a better way because of grace. We can be these imagers, these followers of Jesus. We can break a little bit of God's order in heaven here to earth. And in doing so, reduce the chaos that is all around us. What would our families, what would our schools, what would our city, what would our state, what would our nation look like if we deeply lived to protect human life? If we looked at the person across from us and said, ah, imager of Jesus. Remember I told you to remember the high priest? You couldn't leave the city of refuge until the high priest died. Who's our high priest? It's Jesus, right? It talks about Jesus being the high priest. And what did Jesus the high priest do? See, Jesus, the high priest, he went to the cross to atone, okay, to reconcile, to clean our accounts, wipe them out, so that on that day of judgment, when we stand before God for being accountable in our life, we stand with the righteousness of Jesus. That in Jesus, not does he only say, hey, here's a couple steps to take, but he says, I'm going to give you the power to do it. And when we live in the power of Jesus and we begin to love and protect life like this, it's almost like living life like an ex-adventure sport. It's the Jesus version of the ex-games where I'm going to go out on the limb and I'm going to love you in ways, what, you, you're throwing some enmity towards me, I'm going to respect you. I'm going to protect you even though you come at me. I might get angry, but I'm not going to carry it around. But even if I am, When you come to Christ, Jesus comes alongside of you and he says, I'd like to take that from you. I died for that. Can I take that off? But he doesn't force us, does he? 
He says, will you? So will you? As we take communion together, and you'll go back to the stations, please take a cup, the bread, and remember that anger, that carrying around, that wounding, isn't beyond God's reach and his healing. Ask him how you might live different. Maybe he needs to remove some carried anger from your life. Maybe shortly, sometimes this week, we need a phone call or we need to write a letter or take someone to coffee. Take him up on his offer and allow the inbreaking of heaven to come to earth.